How do we find calm in a chaotic world? This is the question Max Licato, best-selling author and pastor, is frequently asked by people. The world, it seems, is spiraling out of control, and the bad news is piling up on our social media timelines and flashing across the ticker. There's a restlessness, a, an inescapable sense of dread, even among followers of Jesus. We talked to Max about several things, about the lessons he's learned in ministry over several decades, about what spiritual leadership looks like, and I asked for his candid assessment of the evangelical movement, what worries him and what excites him. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Max Licato. Well, I'm glad to have uh, Max Licato here back on the podcast. Uh, Max, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. I want to talk specifically about uh, your latest book called Anxious for Nothing, Finding Calm in a Chaotic World. And I'm just sitting here looking around thinking, I can't imagine a, a better message for this moment, in this cultural moment we're in, where people you know, are just looking around saying, what is going on in the world? We're sort of inundated by the 24-hour news cycle. What compelled you to write this book? Well, I think what you just said is is one of the causes for anxiety is that we have news coming at us from, from all angles. The world changes so fast. You know, we've all read the reports, at least most of us have, that the, the world has changed more in the last 30 years than the prior 300. So there's so many things that are causing the anxiety and, and, and the struggles in the world. Uh, as a pastor, I, I just picked up on this. It seemed like I was talking to more and more people who were dealing with anxiety issues and thought it would be a, a, a good study for our church and had always, and for many years, I've been captivated by this little passage in uh, the book of Philippians uh, where the apostle Paul says, be anxious for nothing. And I always wondered what he meant, how we could do that. And so I began unpacking that with the church and and it seemed to connect with the people, and so we turned those messages into this book. Last year, you know, there's been this kind of anxiety and fear building up for the last few years. Uh, may- maybe the world is actually not worse than it was, but we know more about things because of social media and just instant communication. But obviously, last year's election and then into this year, just it seems like every day there's cause for being uh, outraged or or fearful. And uh, as you're as you're pastoring people. What are some of the things you're trying to think about as you're preaching to them, as you're pastoring, as you're counseling, things that you would maybe counsel Christian leaders uh, to do around the country? Well, well, there are some practical, I mean, logical causes of our anxiety, but then there's also some, some spiritual and supernatural solutions to our anxiety. And unsurprising sources of anxiety, what we've already mentioned, the fact that even as I sit here talking to you, my phone is, I can reach out and touch it and turn it on and I can be told all the bad things that are happening today. Uh, that, that didn't happen to my parents or, or, or to my grandparents. Uh, they were insulated somewhat from, from the bad news. You know, if, if a hurricane struck Florida uh, when my dad was young, he wouldn't hear about it if he heard about it at all till the next day. Now, if a hurricane strikes Florida, I'll have an alert pop up on my phone telling me. So you get the impression that bad things are happening all the time because our world has shrunk. Uh, 
Mm. And then another, and I think a very major thing is that um, is that we don't we don't slow down. I mean, we really don't. We we uh, we move at a pace that our ancestors could not even imagine. You know, uh, our grandparents and great grandparents and ancestors, they would go as far as, I don't know, as their horse could go in a day or their camel could go in a day. Uh, but then because of the settling of darkness, they had to stop. Uh, we simply don't stop. Uh, and and uh, uh, we, we, we stay up late uh, watching television. We stay up late reading things, usually with lights in our eyes. And so our bodies simply don't have the chance to replenish. And so those are just some, those are any book you pick up on anxiety, any person you talk to who studies anxiety will often mention those things. But I think there's some spiritual reasons too uh, that I unpack in the book. And, and, and that's uh, things like we do, many people don't know their purpose in life. Uh, they don't trust that somebody's in control of the world. They don't know of the goodness of God. Uh, their guilt uh, is sucking them under. They've never discovered what to do with their guilt. They don't know what to do with their fears. They don't know a practical way to, to deal with their fears. And so these are some spiritual reasons and spiritual sources for our anxiety that we have to learn to deal with as well. It seems that, uh, you know, even though Christianity has a better story for the world than that answers our fears uh, in the gospel story, it seems that Christians are often perhaps most susceptible to sort of bending with the spirit of the age and kind of being caught up in the stream of worry and fear and outrage uh, that everyone else is in. How can, we, how can we do this better? How can we be the people that, that are able to speak into the culture and say, hey, there's, there's a better story where there's hope uh, on the horizon in Christ? That's a great question. And, and I think that's the message that, that Paul gives us in this passage in the book of Philippians. You know, he, he says you deal with anxiety, first of all, by rejoicing in the Lord. And then he says, as if we didn't hear it the first time, he says, again, I say to you, rejoice. <laughs> always rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. So he, he paints a picture of a Christian as one who, whose uh, mind is dominated by the presence of God. And, uh, and, and the idea is that the more we can allow our mind to be saturated with the goodness and the ability and sovereignty of God, then the smaller our problems become. Uh, and so for the Christian, uh, our, our privilege is that we can meditate more on God's goodness, God's strength, and God's ability. And the result of that is our problems are shrunk down to size. So I think we start there. And then we do what the apostle says. He says, uh, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition, let your request be made known to God. So we pray, we, we lift our requests to God. Before we can let our anxieties get a hold of us, we give them to God. And then we leave them there. We, the, the scripture says, with thanksgiving, we're grateful. We can leave him there. We can leave his presence with rejoicing, knowing that something's gonna be better. And then the scripture says, you meditate on good things. Uh, in the book, I break that down into four steps. Celebrate God, ask God for help, leave the problem with Him, and meditate on good things, C-A-L-M. Uh, this is how we trade our cares for calm. This is, this is how the Christian steps into uh, a relationship with God that really does uh, bring a peace that passes understanding. Now, your question was, how, why is it that, that, that Christians aren't doing this better 
uh, I, I, it could it could have something to do with this unbelievable expectation that we Christians put on ourselves. Our assumption is that if if we're a Christian, then all anxiety is going to disappear. Just the opposite. If we're a Christian, then the devil's going to come with a whole new load of anxiety and expectations. And so don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up if you're a Christian and you struggle with anxiety. Uh, you're still a Christian. And you're still human. Uh, the battle's not over yet. Uh, but, but just take the initiative of trying to learn to deal with your anxiety in a way that it doesn't control you. Mm-hmm. You talk, and I like that you talk in this book about gratitude, because sometimes I wonder if our anxieties and fears, particularly for those of us who live in the West, who have actually really good lives if we you know if we think about historically how people have lived in terms of prosperity and even compared to many people around the world and yet we seem to be the most anxious it seems like we at some level we have a gratitude problem right gratitude is an amazing cure for anxiety if if you ever stop and give yourself the test here's a good one and that is uh, the next time you feel anxious just make a list of the blessings that you have and you'll feel that anxiety begin to evaporate because anxiety and gratitude refuse to share the same heart. And anxiety always leaves when gratitude enters. It's like anxiety doesn't like to be in the presence of gratitude. So the quickest and most efficient way to deal with anxiety is prayer and gratitude. I could have entitled the book Prayer and Gratitude and been been safe. It's not a very stickable title, but that's really, really how you deal with anxiety. You pray about it by acknowledging that God is in control, but then you're grateful. That's why the apostle says, with thanksgiving, and um, thanksgiving is is just a sure cure for anxiety. Um, there's a lot of talk conversation going on now about what, what does it mean to be evangelical? I think sometimes it's tied in with uh, politics, and like it's sort of used as a term by pollsters and people. Uh, are you sensing that, you know, in terms of the church, evangelical church in America, going through some some stress and pressure and trying to de- define who exactly we are and what we believe? You know, um, I, I wouldn't say that I have my pulse on the culture. I'm, I'm a local pastor. You know, I don't write for any uh, large publications or or really do any uh, research of that sort. Uh, I do know in the church where I serve, in San Antonio, Texas, uh, we find ourselves increasingly struggling to maintain our balance in terms of our faith. Uh, I believe that uh, this most recent election uh, caused people to uh, falsely associate uh, Christians with a certain political party, and that causes uh, some stress, maybe some division in political, in, 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 sorry, in church groups. Um, personally, I, I'm, I'm not a big favor of uh, allowing the church to be used by any political group or any organization just to advance their cause. Uh, our cause is to advance the cause of Jesus Christ, regardless of the culture and regardless of the situation. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to, to engage myself in those kind of conversations. Uh, but it is, it's an awkward time. Uh, also, the, the increasing secularism in our society is creating both a, a challenge, but also a wonderful opportunity. It's a challenge because there's no longer the assumption that uh, our society will reinforce the Christian faith. 
but it's a wonderful opportunity mm -hmm. because here's a chance for us to contrast the uh, solutions of Christ for a culture and the solutions of secularism for a culture. And for example, anxiety. Uh, I, I read a dozen books uh, by secular teachers and writers with wonderfully practical uh, pointers on how to deal with anxiety. But compared to the <laughs> treating your anxiety with faith and prayer, I mean, uh, secularism says treat your anxiety with, uh, you know, meditation and yoga and deep breathing exercises. And those are wonderful things, absolutely. But I mean, it's nothing like prayer, nothing like faith, nothing like believing in the presence of an almighty God. And so I, I think we have an opportunity to, to display and to live out uh, a way of dealing with some of the stresses and pressures of life and, uh, and really showing off how powerful our God can be. Do you think some of our anxiety as Christians is because we're not really conditioned to living out a Christian faith that's that's countercultural? And what I mean by that is, you know, having grown up in a, in a nation that is is predominantly Christian, uh, was somewhat informed by Christian principles, we're not really used to a Christianity that is in many ways a kind of minority faith or marginalized faith like like it is around the world and like it has been for most of church history. Do you think that is the root of some of our anxiety as Christians? That's a great point. That's a great point. You know, uh, I, I, I've often said the Bible was written for times like these. Uh, the Bible was not written for a time in which they had all the elected offices, <laughs> in which they were the most popular movie stars and athletes. But really, the Bible was written for, uh, written for and written in uh, times when, when Christians were persecuted or ignored or falsely maligned or in a, unfairly treated. And so uh, it, really the, the scriptures were written to help us know how to be marginalized people. And, uh, and, and, and maybe, maybe it'd be good for us to come at scripture mm -hmm. again from that assumption that, that, that uh, we were called to be people who uh, are salt in a very unsalty world and understand that, that the expectation that our culture is going to applaud us and appreciate us and make movies that agree with us, <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, that's just not, not the world uh, in which we're going to live. Uh, do you find that for pastors or church leaders, preparing people in a kind of First Peter way for this kind of potential, I don't want to say persecution, but marginalization in some ways. Do you think that is more important now than perhaps maybe even when you first started uh, in ministry? Well, there's no doubt about that. There really is. You know, the discussions, I'm 62 years old, and, and I became a Christian when I was 20 and decided to go into ministry at the age of 22 or 23. And so that's four decades, right? That's a long mm -hmm. time. And I don't know if it's just the corner of the world I lived in, but most of the conversations uh, people had back in those days were, which church should I go to? Which church should I attend? Now, the conversation is, does church matter at all? Is church even relevant? Um, the discussion is no longer about comparing denominations or comparing churches or even comparing Bible translations. That was all the kind of the hot topic back in those days. Uh, now, nobody talks about that. Uh, the people who who come to our church or people who come in spite of their family, not because of their family, and in spite of their uh, co-workers, not because of their co-workers. But what I am seeing, especially among millennials, 
I know that millennials uh, kind of get, you know, bashed every so often because so few of them are going to church. Well, that's probably true, but you ought to meet the ones who are going to church. They're wonderful. They have a deep faith. Their faith has been tested in, uh, in a school system or maybe in a university setting where they've had to come to own their own faith. And, uh, and so uh, I, I, while we can be concerned, I think we can also have reason for optimism because a generation of, of deeply of, of, of Christians with deeply rooted faith are going to rise up and not they don't have the luxury of being cultural Christians like I did and I was. Uh, but to, so I'm, I'm very enthused about some of the leaders we see coming up in the church. Mm. That's a that's a really good word. I, I I'm similarly encouraged by younger generations of pastors and leaders who kind of aren't going into ministry expecting to be affirmed for being Christian. You've been a, a pastor and leader for some time now, and uh, w- what would you say? is one of the keys for you in terms of uh, longevity. Like if you're talking to young pastor or leader that's starting in the ministry and you're you're giving uh, them advice, uh, what are some of the keys that you have found in terms of your longevity and just staying fresh and always coming out with fresh ideas and, and, and new things to say uh, throughout the that's years? That's a great question. You know, I, I was blessed with some... Uh, opportunities early on that exposed me to a wide variety of, of uh, Christian ministry. Uh, I, I first was in a training program for pastoral care and did a lot of work in hospital ministry. Uh, then I, I was trained to be a missionary and I spent five years in Brazil. And, uh, and then I was able to go to grad school and be exposed to uh, I never consider myself an academician, but I certainly was, you know, in, in studied at the feet of some really great scholars. And so I was able to be exposed to some, a variety of ministry. And then I was able to lock into the thing that I love to do, and that's preach and write. But I probably wouldn't have, I'm sure I would not have known what I love to do had I not had the opportunity to be exposed to a variety of things. And so I'm really grateful that in the first eight or 10 years of my ministry, I was exposed to a variety of different ministries. And, and there were times when I got a little discouraged because I think I was outside of my giftedness. Uh, but then once I discovered what I uh, enjoyed doing and seemed to do the best, I was given the opportunity to really focus on that. And so I would encourage uh, ministers to, to try to find that part of of Christian service, uh, you know, where you really do succeed and where people want you to, to you know, want you to succeed. Uh, maybe you assume that, that going into ministry meant you would be a preacher. It could mean that. It could mean you'll be a counselor. It could mean you'll be in, uh, an, an executive minister. You'll be in some type of administration. So find that area within the, you know, Christian service where you're, where you're passionate and where you're fruitful. And, and if it's a calling to, like I say, go overseas and spend your life there, and that's where you're fruitful and passionate, then stay there. Uh, but if it's not, I assume that's what I would be. I thought I'd be a missionary. But after five years, I realized that wasn't my calling, but preaching was. And, and, and so I'm very grateful to have spent the last 30 of the 40 years doing the most what I feel like I do the best. And I think that's made it, uh, enabled me to stay in ministry all this all this time. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that's such a great uh, place to end. Thank you so much for your time and for your ministry and for the example. I think one of the things that I think 
people find refreshing about you, Max, is um, not just the the content that you produce, but really I think your gracious spirit and and um, you know continuing to be gracious in ministry. Uh, I think is, is something that people uh, admire you for. Well, you're very, very kind. Thank you for listening to the Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.